0: Tonight, as we finish up Genesis chapter 22, when you think about Abraham's final exam, which we started last week, we have this incredible picture of a test that probably none of us in this room can even imagine, much less imagine passing. Amen? I, I know, I, me personally... There's a lot of things that I could probably think about surrendering to the Lord, but surrendering my only son, hmm, not sure Pastor Jeff would have passed that one. Mind-boggling faith necessary to trust God, and we're going to see that faith tonight. As you think on this chapter, of course, we're going to get into the The typology that's here, and it is one of the most beautiful in the Old Testament. But I want you to also see the humanity in this because there's a human side, and there's, of course, the divine side what God knows, what God is at work doing, and what Abraham knows about God and Abraham's faith, and what Abraham has to do in a physical, real world. Sometimes I see Christians and and I feel for them because their walk of faith is always in the uber-spiritual. It it rarely reaches the reality of life. And so as long as it's a high and lofty, lifted-up experience of, you know, maybe some ecstatic language or some service to where there's, you know, very expressive worship, they're okay there, but when it comes to family, when it comes to finances, when it comes to time, talent, and treasure, um, those things are a lot harder for them. The real world is where your faith, my faith, our faith gets tested, amen? That test is going to be major tonight, so would you join me and let's pray for a time in the word. Father, we thank you for the example of Abraham, this story really is the background of the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, and so we pray tonight that as we study and read that you would bless us with understanding, encourage our faith, Lord, build us up in our faith. Lord, I pray that we might all be able to take this final exam and pass it, and so God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word in Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me for a moment. I had one of those dry tickles that was about ready to happen, so... Verse 6, Genesis 22, if you'll turn there. And so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And I want you to take close, pay close attention to the details that are laid out in this story, and we're going to go through them towards the end because each one of them is important. Notice where the wood of the sacrifice is laid. It's on the back of the son. It gives you an idea of what to look for as we move through this passage. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, look, fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the lamb, dad? And Abraham said my son God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. It's really important that you look at the actual original language here to get the sense of it. God's not talking about just any lamb. God's not just talking about some way to appease the necessity of the sacrifice. It literally says in the original Hebrew, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. And when they came to the place of God, of which he had told him, Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar and upon the wood and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I think it's important to understand that Isaac was not a child and Abraham was an old man. This is a beautiful picture of grace because there is no way that Abraham could have forced Isaac to get on that pile of wood. Had Isaac wanted to get away, Isaac could have gotten away. Had Isaac desired to rebel, that would have not been a problem. He could have overwhelmed his aged father and went on his way. And so you can see the typology here. You can see the message that the Lord is sending in the very first book of the Bible, one third of the way through that very first book, we see the provision for the cross. We see the sacrifice of the Son. We see the Father who gave his only son. We see the full picture of the gospel message laid out before us. In verse 11 it says, But the angel of the Lord, and again, please be very careful with the prepositions here, that's accurate, the angel of the Lord. Not an angel, not a angel, the angel. And the angel of the Lord is without question, not an angel at all, but the one and only Holy One of Israel, the Lord Jesus himself the angel of the Lord, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he, Abraham, said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. And while God can't be taught anything, he does wait for our works to prove our faith. Amen? so that we will know, so the world will know. Much what we said this morning, the world is looking at you not so much to hear what you say, but how you live your life, and does your life back up what you have declared? Abraham's life backed up what he declared. Backed up that he believed the promise of God, even backed up that if necessary, God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's how much he trusts God here. The knife is in the air. Abraham's ready to plunge it down. And and that's easy to see in that the voice from heaven stops him. There's no reason to believe that that knife being raised over Isaac is not going to also come down. This is an act of absolute faith and trust in the Lord. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me, And then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. What was Isaac's question? He didn't ask where's the goat. He didn't ask where's the ram. He said where's the lamb. And that's an important feature to this story. And so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. Now you see, a ram would have been an acceptable burnt offering. But it would take none other than exactly what John the Baptist would say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. A ram could put away sin, a ram could atone for a period of time, but only a lamb could take away the sin. And so Isaac's question is perfect, where's the lamb, dad? God's response is found what comes next, and Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. Our Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. God Himself is going to have to do this because there's no way that Abraham can do it, that Isaac can do it, that man can do it. It's an impossibility because it is not sufficient for our sins simply to be atoned for, put away for a period of time. They have to be completely forgiven, they have to be paid. Propitiation must be made. They can't just simply be put away for later because if they're put away for later, later will come. They have to be buried in the depths of the sea. They have to be not remembered. They have to be put behind the back of God. They need to be permanently dealt with, not temporarily dealt with. You see, when the Jewish people come to these ten high holy days and we're about there, and this final feast, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement... It was on that day that the ram was slaughtered. It was on that day that the scapegoat was laid hands on and sent into the wilderness so that the sins of the high priest and his family and the children of Israel were sent away. They were temporarily dealt with. And there as the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat between the two cherubim, For about three nanoseconds, everybody was good with God because those sins were atoned for. They were at peace temporarily with God because they were put away. And then as soon as someone sinned, the ball began rolling for the next day of atonement because they were not paid for. They were atoned for a very different word. Very different meaning. And so here we have a picture of the sins finally being paid for. That place, of course, was Moriah, which we saw previously. Interestingly enough, both by Jewish tradition, also Islamic tradition, that place is inside currently the Dome of the Rock Mosque. That's the high point of Mount Moriah. Very likely where where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And in fact, if you could get inside the Dome of the Rock, you would find the rock itself and a hole that's down through it into a cavern. That hole is actually called the Well of Souls. And so historically, here's this place that would have also been the location of the Holy of Holies of at least the first temple, if not the second temple. And so there's a little bit of problem with there being a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And, And while you could make a case that you could squeeze it in alongside without causing a major uproar in the Islamic world, it really is apparent to me that ultimately the Lord is going to remove every idol from the temple mount because on the outside of the Dome of the Rock Mosque multiple times it says God has no son I'm pretty sure the Lord's not going to leave that and then have it looking down on the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem so there's a day coming when God is going to once again reclaim Mount Moriah And give it its rightful place in the history of redemption of mankind. And it is said to this day that in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you. and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven And as the sand which is on the seashore, so your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, this covenant with Abraham still stands. God's people. The whole focus, when you read the little tiny book of Joel, just three chapters, the whole focus of the book of Joel is this day and time when God's going to say enough. And he is going to bring redemption to the nation Israel. And here he makes a promise which to this day still stands. Blessing I will bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the sand of the sea. He's making promises here that only God can keep because you see, during the Second World War, the Jewish people were very close to being exterminated from the face of the earth. Perhaps two to three million Jews were left after the Second World War in the entire world. Many of them in abject poverty and starvation. And so when Israel becomes a nation May 14th 1948, which we've just celebrated the 70th anniversary of the rebirth of the nation Israel. From that day to this, I can guarantee you a couple things. Israel's staying in the land. They will never be removed again. They will prosper, which they are the ninth largest economy in the entire world currently. They're moving in on number eight. They will likely become the number eight largest economy in the entire world. That's a nation of less than nine million people that is the size of about a third of San Bernardino County. God keeps his promises. Make no mistake on it. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. When you start thinking about the contributions of the Jewish people to the world that we live in, if you own a cell phone, thank the Jewish people. If you undergo a heart transplant, thank the Jewish people. If you don't have polio, thank the Jewish people. You understand what I'm saying? Over 25 percent of all Nobel laureates, Jewish people, and yet they represent one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. God keeps His promises. He will continue to keep his promises. And so when he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, I take that very seriously. The church, the bride of Christ, has a debt to pay to Israel. And that debt is a debt of gratitude of faith because our Savior, the one who's pictured in this passage, is Jewish. Descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. you look at Israel today, it's almost mind-boggling the disproportionate amount of power. When you study the wars of Israel, the modern wars, within one week of Israel declaring its independence, it was attacked by 11 Arab nations. The armies amassed against them were more than 10 times the military capability of Israel, and guess yet who prevailed. Israel. In 1973 is their attack from Syria through the Golan Heights, one of the places that we visit. They're in this valley called the Valley of Oz. You have almost 10,000 Syrian tanks. You have less than a 100 Israeli tanks. Guess who wins? Israel. God keeps his promises. This picture is wonderful because of its implications of grace and it's wonderful for its implications for the future of Israel. Because the Apostle Paul was absolutely correct when he said one day all Israel will be saved. God has a plan. That plan begins with the Abrahamic covenant. And so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. And now it came to pass after these things that it was told to Abraham saying, indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, and Haz's firstborn, and Buzz's brother, and Kimuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, and Pildash, Jidthap, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begat Rebekah, keep an eye on her. And these eight bore Milcah, and these eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, and his concubine, whose na- name was Ramah, who also bore Tebah, Gaham, Thahash, and Mahakah. And so this little mini genealogy here at the end. Some things that we can learn from this passage. There's some emphasis here. Number one, God is going to provide the lamb. And of course he does. Number two, only God, only Jehovah Jireh can provide that. There are things that you can do and there are things that only God can do and this is one of those things that only God can do. Don't confuse the two. Very often I see Christians with false faith believing that if they just simply command loud enough and long enough that God is obligated to do anything you want. No, God is only obligated to do what he wants and only inside of the confines of his perfect plans for all of humanity. We don't tell God what to do. God tells us what to do. He is Jehovah Jireh. He's the one that provides. It is a mistake and it's theologically uh, dangerous, really, to consider yourself, in essence, on par with God to where you tell him what to do. I meet Christians that do that. Their prayer life indicates such. I'm going to name it. I'm going to claim it. You better be careful about what you're naming and claiming. Because there's no place in Scripture that says that God is obligated to do our bidding. But Scripture speaks volumes that we are here to do exactly what he tells us to do. On what could Abraham depend? I'll give you a few things here. He certainly couldn't depend on his feelings, Amen. How many Christians do you know are led by feelings? I know a lot of them because I hear their stories. I felt this, I felt that, I feel like this, I feel like that. My heart tells me this, and while those things are not necessarily wrong, nor are they ungodly at times, your feelings can also be nothing more than feelings. They can be your emotions. They can actually be twisted a little bit by the enemy and by circumstances of this world. By those three things I gave you this morning, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So be careful with your feelings. Abraham had to be in terrible pain. I can't imagine that he he could imagine slaying his son. If he relied solely on his feelings, they would have been booking it the other direction. Amen? Amen? There's no way if he was going by his feelings that he would have continued that journey. He said, you got the wrong guy. I'm keeping my son. Nor could Abraham depend on other people. He had to face this alone. This was his faith that was being tested and he had to face it alone. Sarah was at home. The two servants went back to camp. It's just him the wood, the fire, the knife, the altar, and Isaac. That's it. You're going to face those things in life. And I think God not only does it intentionally, it is there in those moments that we grow the most. That's where we really see our faith grow. Because when it's just you and God, you don't have all that external input. Anybody ever been confused by getting a whole bunch of counsel and none of it agreed with one another? All of a sudden it's like, you know, it's like everybody's giving you their two cents and probably it was worth less than that. Sometimes it's just you and God. And God likes it that way. Good counsel is a good thing. Don't mistake what I'm saying and don't mistake because Scripture says so. In the multitude of counselors there is safety or wisdom. That's also true. But there are times that God's just going to leave you with him. Get ready for those times. Anytime you see a situation like this, remember back in chapter 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer to that is no, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. It may seem like it from your perspective, it may seem like it, From my perspective, with that Philippians 4.13 promise, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, applies to your faith as well. Sometimes what God is saying to you is you just need to have your faith strengthened. And so you go through something you don't think you can go through. You go through that trial, it's like, Lord, I just don't know if I can survive this. And that is likely the very reason that the Lord's allowing it in your life is because you don't know that you can go through it. And he's growing your faith. He's testing you. He's allowing you to do something that you wouldn't choose for yourself. Look, let's face it. There's probably not a single person in this room, myself included, if we were left to our own devices, that we would choose hard, painful, awful things like this. Amen? We'd be working out a little plans like, well, we're going to get a we would have got the ram. We would have taken that with us. We would have named the goat Isaac. You know, we'd have got a rubber dagger or something, you know, it's just like, well, I'm in to look, I hit him with the rubber dagger. You know, we would have done something different. We would have tried to get out of this. But that's not how God works. He works in reality. And he works in your life and the time that you're living. And so God puts him through this test legitimately. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. Including if the very worst thing happens. Abraham raises that knife and there is no voice from the Lord of hosts. And Abraham ends the life of Isaac The faith of Abraham had grown so much that he went from lying about who his wife was to being willing to sacrifice his only son, believing that not only could he raise him from the dead, but knowing that the very promise God made rested on that son being raised from the dead. That if Isaac's not raised, there is no extension of Abraham's lineage through Sarah. Sarah. So there's a multiplicity of problems here that God alone can solve. And God is up to the task. Was in Abraham's life, is in my life and yours. There's some truths hidden here about God's provision. We don't like some of these truths. Where does the Lord provide for our needs? Exactly in the right place. You see, we want to dictate where God is going to meet our needs. We want to tell God the circumstances whereby we will let him meet our needs. As human beings, we try and say, well, God, I'm, I'm going to serve you if. We condition God very often. In our prayer life, we condition it in the way that we conduct our living. It's like, God, I, I want you to do this here. Here. If you do it here, I'm good with that. I think we can probably all think of examples. The chief among them are the absolutely unlimited number of times where I've had young couples, maybe they want to serve the Lord in some mission field, and I'm, I'm sitting there telling them, going, you're not ready, you're not ready, you're not ready. I'm not trying to kill your, your zeal here, but you need a little growing. You've been saved for a week. Probably not good that you take a church. And see, there's a right place. But we get ahead of the Lord and we run to a place that God is not. And he has to take us back to the place where he can bless us. There is a right place. When does God meet our needs? In exactly the right time. So if he tells you yes, You're you're, kind of in good shape. He may tell you no. And then you don't know whether he said no permanently or whether he said no now and wait. You can see this in Abraham's life. This could have happened years before. This could have happened literally when Isaac was a child, amen? He could have just tucked Isaac underneath the arm. Come on, boy. Okay, I'm not going to like this, but... You know, he could have done it sooner. But there was a time and there was a place because the story actually increases in faith when Isaac's a teenager and could have fought off Abraham. You see how it actually adds to the actual story itself and how unlikely it is that this is anything other than a miracle of God. There was a right time. God does that. There's also a right way. How does God provide for us? Can I just tell you, God doesn't need to use lying and deception and cheating. He he doesn't need to use worldly means to accomplish His will and purpose in our lives. God does things the right way. And so, when you see this in this situation, notice what He's doing He's using the natural things. He's using the stuff around there. He's saying, Look, there's there's the ram in the thicket. All Abraham needed was one animal. Notice how we don't see, well, there was a flock nearby, and Abraham ran. There was exactly one. It could be not mistaken that that ram was anything other than Jehovah Jireh. That proved it was the right way. There weren't any other rams. There was no mistaking what God was doing here because God alone did it in His time and God alone did it His way. To whom does God make this provision? Who does God provide for? Now, God universally is good to all of humankind. Because God is good, He is universally good to everyone. But in this sense, He makes these kind of provisions to His kids. those that trust him those that will wait in faith and why does god do that because everything he does is right it's perfect amen you can see that all in this story as you look at this you can you can see god training us to understand how he works i see people mess this whole process up frequently and often Because we're not in the right place, God doesn't provide, people get mad with God. Because it's not right now and we want it right now, people get mad with God. Because it comes in some way that we don't expect, people are angry and upset with God. God is Jehovah Jireh. And he does everything he does The right place, the right time, the right way, only for his kids. And he always does exactly what's right. That's how he works. Can you see the cross? I hope you can. Who acted at the cross of Christ? The Father and the Son. God sent his only begotten Son into the world that the world through him might be saved. Who was talking at the cross? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was father and son who's in the story. Father and son. Who had to die at the cross? The son. Who had to die in the story? The son. The father had to give up his only son. What is Abraham giving up? His only son. It was God's only son. Abraham's only son. It would be the son that's raised from the dead. In this case, Isaac doesn't actually die, but he's as good as dead. The knife's overhead. It's coming. It's a divine miracle because it wasn't necessary. You see the right time, the right place for the sacrifice because that was going to come over 1,500 years later. Didn't have to die. But it's pictured here. Whose plan was this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life, amen? That's God's plan. You have all of that in this story. So sometimes people will say, well, you know, I just don't know about the Old Testament. I mean, it's just, you know, there's all these wars and people dying, but there's also the grace of God. There's also the plan of God. There's the mercy of God. There's the kindness of God. There's the gentleness of God. It's all there if you care to see it. Looking forward to some new things. And you can see this in this final section of this chapter. I I want you to look at some of these things with me. As Abraham is blessed in this new way, He's receiving really a new approval from God, isn't he? You look at how God's working in his life. I mean, he's never been like this together with, with the Lord. He, he's, he's not, he's in a new place. You can see that in verse 12. Abraham had described this worship experience and now all of a sudden it's like, man, I'm willing to do anything you ask me to do, God. That was not Abraham's place before, was it? Like anytime something hard came up, Abraham was trying to get out of it, usually by telling some kind of a story, wasn't he? So this is a new approval from the Lord. That's what these tests do in your life. He received back a new son this is the picture picture in, in that way almost of the prodigal. It's like his son was dead and he's now come back. Abraham is going to receive from God some new assurances. There's a couple of little tiny differences here in how God describes this covenant with him. And it's like, man, look at the faithfulness of God. He He learns a new name for God. You see, as you go through life and you experience things that you didn't expect and haven't had planned and haven't gone through before, you're going to learn some new names for God. For some of you, you need to learn Jehovah Jireh. For others of us, we need to learn Jehovah Rapha, our God who heals. Or maybe you need Jehovah Sitkanu, our God who is our righteousness. You'll learn new things about God when you're willing to go through new tests with God. When you go into the fire and say, Lord, I trust you. He receives some new family here, and I love this. Because here comes Rebecca. You see, in this little mini-genealogy, you have the wife of Isaac. Even though you don't know it yet, we haven't gotten there yet. You're going to have the mother of Jacob and Esau, You're going to have a willing servant. You're going to have a woman who's hospitable to strangers. You're going to see someone who's obedient to God's will, God's word, and God's way. And ultimately, what you see in this chapter is you see Abraham come away with a much deeper faith than he had before the test. Amen? Let God do the things he wants to do in your life. You will grow from it. You'll be enriched by it. You'll be more useful to the king. Amen? Father, thank you for your Word. It is the reason, as Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, that we bow our knees to the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant us, according to riches and glory, that we might be strengthened in the spirit and the inner man. Lord, strengthen us tonight that Christ may dwell in our hearts. That incredible prayer of the Apostle Paul, Lord, let it be to us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.